As we continue worshiping together today, you may turn in your favorite Bible app or the Pew Bible and receive this reading from the book of Exodus, beginning in chapter 3, verse 1. Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. He led his flock beyond the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of a bush. He looked, and the bush was blazing, yet it was not consumed. Then Moses said, I must turn aside and look at this great sight and see why the bush is not burned up. When the Lord saw that he had turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses, and he said, here I am. Then he said, come no closer, remove the sandals from your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. He said further, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have observed the misery of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their cry on account of their taskmasters. Indeed, I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them from the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the country of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. The cry of the Israelites has now come to me. I have also seen how the Egyptians oppress them. So come, I will send you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? He said, I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that it is I who sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall worship God on this mountain. But Moses said to God, If I come to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your ancestors has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. He said further, thus you shall say to the Israelites, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, thus you shall say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this my title for all generations. Receive what the Spirit is saying. Thank you, Reverend Gaines Sorelli. And I will never get used to calling you that, even at official publications where it is necessary and appropriate. You will always be my rabbi, Rabbi Ginger. For your kind introduction, and most importantly, the opportunity to be with your amazing community, this congregation this morning. And to you, the members of Foundry United Methodist Church, thank you for your long history of involvement in getting your hands dirty in the sacred work of moral leadership, of social justice, as well as your warm welcome to me, not only this morning, not only through the last several weeks of our text studies together, 
but for all of those times that my friend invited me to join with a group online during COVID. And Rabbi Ginger, I think we need to expand your circle of rabbis a little bit so that you can better distinguish a big or only fish in a relatively small pond from the many rabbis who more richly deserve some of those descriptives you continue to lavish upon me, many of whom live and work right in this neighborhood, by the way. I kept looking around at both services going, who's she introducing? I got to meet this guy. So now allow me to ask and to answer, what is a rabbi from Bowie, Maryland, doing at a church like Foundry, preaching about Moses and leadership two weeks before the Jewish high holidays when I have to explore with my own community the scriptural model of Abraham. It's not exactly what I was planning to be working on this week. But when my friend over there called me while I was driving through the south of this country learning the truths about racial justice and injustice in our country, both historically and sadly still today, and invited me not only to teach on Tuesdays, but to take one of the Sundays and come preach. It turned out this was the one Sunday I was available, and the offer was just too good to pass up. So here I am, and I'm grateful to be here. Not only to have been able, and again, thank you, my friend, for your words about labor and Moses this morning. They fit with what I'm here to speak about in a very profound way. And I'm grateful not only because, as it turns out, being knee-deep in the really challenging stories of Abraham that I have to confront with my congregation on our New Year's celebration. You know, the one where he first sends away his son Ishmael because Sarah was concerned about sibling rivalry and making sure that Isaac got what was truly his. And then his effort in just the next chapter to sacrifice Isaac because God he thought, asked him to, that our, our lectionary for Rosh Hashanah, but because of that work in Abraham that this season requires of me, it has allowed me to view Moses at the bush in ways that I had not previously considered or been able to see. As I read last week's reading from Exodus chapters 1 and 2 about Moses' birth and rescue from the river, and again with chapter 3 of Exodus this week, I could see the efforts of the church elders and leaders and founders to frame the early Moses stories as a foreshadowing of Jesus' birth and youth, to allow the character of Jesus to be strengthened by the parallels to Moses. Now, I have to tell you, as a Jew, I personally wouldn't necessarily read it that way, but I can certainly understand why Christians would want to and gain value from it. And in studying these stories now, at this time of year, as I prepare for Rosh Hashanah, rather than at their Jewish occurrence in the winter, or in connection with Passover in the spring, I am able to see parallels, especially this week, to earlier leaders. Parallels to Jacob, who is also known as Israel, who gave his name to the people that Moses would lead out. And especially to Abraham. Connections worthy of discussion, of deeper exploration. In the 30 years that I have been doing interfaith work, and I've had the privilege of teaching non-Jews about Judaism, one of the things that I've learned is that one way to learn about a group, whether it's a religious group or otherwise, is to listen to their stories. For Muslims, much of their story is bound up in the life of the Prophet Muhammad. 
For Christians, much of the story is anchored in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. And our Jewish story is similar if, leave it to us Jews, slightly more complicated. Most of the story of the Torah of the first five books is the story of the life and leadership of Moses. But that story has a significant prologue called the book of Genesis, which centers primarily on the life of Abraham, the first Jew, and his family. So I shouldn't have been surprised that there's a Jewish understanding of our text today that would link Moses as an emerging leader to Abraham. Just as Christian readers find the similarities between Moses' origins and those of Jesus. After all, all three were born to be redeemers and transformative figures. And the amazing thing about the world prior to the communications revolution is that all of these great leaders in history were born just like you and me. No one knew at the time of their birth what they would become, and so nobody was chronicling their childhoods. When we read their stories today, those had to be compiled later to fill in the backstory of these people who emerged as great leaders. If you think about it, Moses is found in a straw basket on the river by Pharaoh's daughter. Jesus is discovered in a manger by the three magi with his parents there. There's a similarity that we wouldn't necessarily see, but once it's pointed out, it's hard to question. And certainly the two of them in their life, in their early lives, in their leadership, had to face down foreign rulers who were simply threatened by the mere existence of a leader like a Moses or a Jesus. And we allow ourselves to see these similarities, to look at the text through these lenses. It allows us to be able to agree that these stories speak to not, as Pastor Ginger has established over the past few weeks, leadership within the family of Moses' origin, but more within the family of his choosing and the family that chose him. Because while Moses was an Israelite by birth, that's not the family we think of. We think of him as coming back and leading the people he was born into. But think about how he became a leader because of having been saved by Pharaoh's daughter and raised in the court of Egypt under the Pharaoh. How when he ran away to Midian, he found the daughter of the priest of Midian who married him off to his daughter became not only his father-in-law, but his mentor and teacher. So, leadership and families came to Moses even before he came to lead the people out. And here, as our Tuesday night group has learned and struggled with over the past few weeks, is where the issue gets really complicated. So allow me to share a rabbinic debate in the Talmud some 1,500 years ago about that bush that burned but was not consumed. They ask and argue, was this marvel created by God to choose which human was worthy to lead the Israelites out of Egyptian servitude because he or she turned aside to see it? The one who would, by doing so, make themselves the one to lead the Israelite people back to the land promised to Abraham? 
Or was this bush created at the very end of creation with miraculous properties and then left aside to be set ablaze at this exact moment in history in order to specifically show Moses' unique suitability for the task? Did the bush choose Moses? Or did Moses choose the bush? And intriguingly, but not uniquely, after engaging in this debate, the rabbis of 1,500 years ago refused to resolve it. They left it undecided for us to choose. Because it turns out that either way, what made Moses the ideal candidate was perhaps that we may see Moses as a humble and compassionate shepherd, exactly what God seeks to tend and to rescue the flock in, flock in Egypt, because he was that. And if you think about it, we still use language like that today. Pastors leading flocks. Shepherds shepherding souls. Moses was all that. In fact, Moses even questioned his own fitness before God to be a leader. Although, if we're being honest, he didn't push nearly hard back against God as, say, Abraham did in negotiating the fate of Sodom and Gomorrah. But this is also a Moses who, in the material not included in our lectionary between last week and this week's readings, that would be your lectionary, the one that I've become familiar with now, also kills an Egyptian taskmaster who is afflicting a Hebrew, which I guess makes him a person who cared about the workforce intensely, who buried the body to hide what he has done, who fleed to Midian when the people discovered what he had done, and when he gets to Midian, he physically confronts shepherds who are abusing Jethro's daughter, Tzipporah, while she tended her family's flocks with her sisters because there were no sons, all of which give us a very different side of Moses' character. And for a Christian reader, seeing in Moses a historical foundation from which Jesus emerges with his message of peace, leaving out this other side of Moses makes sense. However, for me as a rabbi and a Jew, the whole picture of Moses actually, to me, makes him more fit for the task that God has set out for him. Not only does his confusing origin story give him a unique relationship to the Israelites with whom he is kin, having been born as one of them, and the Midianites into whom he has married, but he's also familiar with the inner workings of Pharaoh's court, where God is sending him to say, let my people go. And his time in Midian has also established him as that skilled shepherd, but one who still carries an edge, a passion, the ability to fight for what is right for the people God is asking him to lead out of Egypt. So why then, you might ask the question mark in the title of my remarks this morning, leader of the family? Question mark? And I believe I had three reasons for leaving the question mark in. First is the universal question of whether leaders are born to lead or shaped by their experience. This question is at the heart of the rabbinic debate that is never resolved. And even though the cursory read of these texts, both in the edited lectionary form that you're familiar with and in the fuller Old Testament version, they both seem to show Moses was born to this role. But a deeper reading suggests that he was formed by his human experience in emerging as a leader over time. Because the second, less obvious question is the question of when exactly Moses was truly established as the leader of the people that he became. 
For some, it was at his birth. For others, it was when he confronted the Egyptian or the Midianite bullies. For still others, it is here at the bush. For those who believe that a leader must have followers, it's either at his return to Egypt or more likely, since he was not well received at first because Pharaoh's initial response was to make the work of the the Hebrews harder, which didn't make him a very good labor leader to begin with. But eventually he was accepted by the people. And that appears to be a time when we might have seen him as a leader. Or maybe it's as he starts to confront Pharaoh in the first place, who was after all believed to be a god himself. For most of us, I suspect, it's either in leading the people out of Egypt or in bringing the Hebrews to the mountain where God speaks the commandments to us. For me, it's none of those and all of those. For me, if it is not when he speaks to the people the name of God who sent him to rescue them and thereby gains his acceptance, then it is surely in the incident with the golden calf. When Moses extended absence on the mountain, caused the people to seek a new human leader to replace him. But their acts and their requests become the creation of the golden calf, which is a replacement instead of God. The people by then have confused the human Moses with the divine unseen God. And even the biblical interplay between God and Moses up on the mountain at this moment has always read to me a little bit more like a sitcom couple of parents arguing over who's going to go down and chastise the children than it reads as God talking to God's chosen human leader. And that realization leads in turn to the third, perhaps most significant question of the day, at least for me. Who is really the leader here in this story? Now, for me, that's never really been a question. It's God. It's not Moses. It's God. Moses is more like the building superintendent, the one who's responsible for the daily upkeep and leadership of the building for the landlord who has put him there, because the landlord has other issues to attend to elsewhere at the same time and cares about what happens but can't be personally hands-on responsible in that moment. Or perhaps for those of you who are movie buffs, Moses is the projection, projection, it's not a hard word, Rabbi, say it the projection of the great and powerful Oz onto the screen, scaring Dorothy and her fellow travelers, and not the one behind the curtain really pulling all the levers. And ironically, who is it who pulls the curtain aside and reveals the truth? It's Toto. Moses is a leader, a great leader, a chosen leader by God, but God is the leader who has placed Moses in this position and supports him there. For both of our communities and our desire and ability to work together, in our shared efforts to work with others to improve our world, this awareness is critical and foundational. You may follow the interpretations taught to you by your incredible group of clergy here, by the United Methodist Church themselves, as your inspiration in this partnership and work. My folks at my congregation certainly follow my lead when I give them one and our movement's position. 
But in the end, we are able to work together when we recognize we are all doing God's work. And our monotheism reminds us that we are ultimately all serving the same God, because if we are truly monotheists who believe that there is only one God, you can't be serving one and me serving another. That would be more than one. (laughs) I was told there would be no math this morning, but that's not math. We may see that God differently, oftentimes we do, but ultimately that is the God we share who is binding us together. And sadly, too often today and throughout history, God becomes instead a cudgel, not merely to divide, but is an excuse to force others to believe and to act in a certain way. When we look at the world that we seek to improve, it feels like many of those circumstances that we feel called by God to address may actually have been created or made worse by such theological misreadings. And the perceived leaders who preach such a gospel of cudgel, too often in their own minds or those of their followers, have replaced God's voice with their own, much like Pharaoh was mistakenly believed to be God in Egypt. And we know how that worked out. That is what we people of faith need to guard against and help others to recognize because as obvious as it seems and as committed as we are to that truth, even we have moments when we lose sight of the big picture. And so I thank you all for being leaders and teachers, for being here this morning and being willing to hear my message, to help me to see this truth in new ways, and to find the words and the courage to preach this message. May we all continue to be this kind of leader, always acknowledging God's true leadership, even in those who see things differently than we do. I pray for you and for all of us, continuing clarity of faith and mission, courage and strength to work for a better world for all, And may we continue to have both the humility and the passion of Moses and control of its less savory manifestations that lead us astray. And as we say at my place in Hebrew, may it be God's will.